Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is author and psychotherapist, Chelsea Harvey Garner. We'll talk about her debut book, A Pity Party is Still a Party, a feel-good guide to feeling bad that shows us not only how to tolerate uncomfortable feelings, but why and how we should embrace them if we are to find our way to mental health. Garner shares experiences and insights from her own family trauma and from her clinical practice that informed the book and why, ultimately, it is a book about love. It is a book about loving life. It's a book about being able to love this world with its brokenness and to love our experience with all of its despair. Chelsea Harvey Garner is a writer, psychotherapist, and founding director of Big Feels Lab, a nonprofit promoting collective mental health. A lifelong outcast, she specializes in helping misfits, survivors, and unconventional families turn pain into purpose and connect with each other more deeply. Her debut book, A Pity Party is Still a Party, A Feel-Good Guide to Feeling Bad, is released in July of 2023 from HarperCollins. When not working, she can be found starting dance parties in public and hosting cuddle puddles at her home in New York City. Today's conversation is being recorded remotely. Chelsea Harvey Garner, welcome to Lives. Hey Stuart, it's so good to be here. Perhaps we can use a book to explore some themes within it that speak to our experiences sure. in, in the world and also perhaps to speak to themes in your own life. And, and many of us sense that we have a book in us. Mm. How did you know you had a book in you and what did it take to actually get that book out? Yeah, two kind of different questions for me. In terms of knowing that I had a book in me, it feels like a really physical process. It feels very somatic. I think I've I've always been the kind of writer that writes just compulsively. It has never felt like a choice for me. I have never had a daily practice. I've never really needed to, I would say, but at the same time, I can't say that it wouldn't benefit me. I've just always had to write. I've always had to pull over to the side of the road back when I used to drive in Nebraska and just write to process my experience. It feels like something coming up. I mean, it's it's like puking. I'm sorry if that's gross, but it's like just the physical nature of getting something out. And it feels really good, though, in terms of knowing that something is a book in the sense that it's like big enough to be held at that length and that depth. I think what I what I discovered was that I was kind of fixating on these particular ideas. And also it was other people saying it back to me, like, oh, that, that thread that you keep bringing up when we're hanging out, that seems like something people need to hear. And with this book, it really took my friend April, who's, who's from Omaha as well, or she lived there, April Faith Slaker, and she said, you know, that thing, did you, I, I think I made the joke, a pity party is still a party. And she was like, that's your first book. So it took someone else kind of saying back to me, people need to hear that particular theme. But it was this set of ideas that I just couldn't stop thinking about and talking about. What was that journey then from the ideas and that affirmation from a friend that, you know, here it is, and there's the title right there. 
what was that journey from the idea through the grueling work of writing it and, and then actually getting to this place where HarperCollins is releasing it uh, in July? That was a wild time. It took many years for me to sort of get to a place where I felt ready to pitch a book to an agent, right? And actually other friends were involved in that process. So I had known, I've always known that writing was kind of my craft. And I also knew that it was unlikely to be like my financial (laughs) foundation for my career. So I had been kind of making these connections. I'd been working, actually wrote for Omaha Magazine for a while, just like some culture pieces here and there and been going to conferences and just observing people who were writing books, who had agents and kind of trying to listen to like the way that they sold an idea, the way that they encapsulated it. And and you can't be precious about your own idea, right? You have to empathize so much with the person hearing you. And so I had kind of picked up some of those skills and I'd made a network of connections with people who wrote nonfiction. And by this point I had already I was in the process of becoming a therapist and I knew I wanted to write about mental health and culture and that would kind of work well together. So I wrote a proposal with the help of another friend, Michelle Lent Hirsch, and we just kind of talked about who might want it and decided to pitch to the agent that I have now. And then the pandemic started, actually, like we started pitching this book to editors right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so That was interesting, too, because I was imagining that this was a book for people who'd had an experience somewhat like mine, who had a lot of trauma in their history, who had always felt sort of out of place. And then suddenly everybody's talking about mental health. And so I think that's part of why HarperCollins took interest and several other publishers seemed to be interested as well and made offers. And we were like, oh, obviously, we don't want to say thanks to the pandemic, but at the same time... (laughs) It was really moving for me to feel that I had a message that was relevant to kind of the common American person. Having always felt like my experience was considered so strange, I was like, wow, suddenly these kind of normal people are like, this is what we're feeling too. The book does include a number of vignettes from your own personal life, your own personal experiences. You use the word trauma then, and and, and we'll talk about some aspects of what you reveal in in the book in a while. You write the book, though, using those as illustrative and and perhaps inspirational in the sense that you are sharing with people that you have experienced these things, you have learned from them. These can be useful experiences for others to learn from too. The book itself is structured, and I don't know how to describe this in publishing terms, but it feels more like a a how-to, a how you, the reader, can take steps, journey along, learn from these things and take practical uh, steps towards solutions. What was it that made you think that that kind of structure was how you wanted to organize this book? The structure was the hardest part for me to find. Just thinking again about what people might need, you know, what length of each chapter might be helpful, what order these ideas should come in. And trying to remember, you know, moments in my life when I just really needed like a nugget of wisdom on a specific question. So even thinking about how would someone who's looking for this nugget find it? Would they want to go through the table of contents? Would they know what they're looking for? 
those questions were kind of maddening for me during the process, but in a, in a beautiful way that is a part of my nature. I'm very obsessive when I get into this process. And so I enjoy it, but that was really difficult. And in terms of like, I wanted it to feel like a how-to in the sense that I wanted it to be really accessible to people at varying levels of their own process, like levels of self-awareness, levels of comfort with opening up to others. I wanted everybody to feel like they could take something. And I didn't want it to feel like a book that was just for me to flex my writing muscle. That didn't feel like the point here. It felt like this should be a book people could start at any point. They could pick it up in the middle. They could carry it onto the subway with them. And they're going to get something even if they only read it for two minutes. So that was really important to me. And the vignettes about my life, it's funny. Another person who I was being interviewed with the other day said, referred to it as a memoir. And I was like, wow. So people are experiencing this as really personal. It doesn't feel that vulnerable to me. Maybe just because I feel like there's a lot that I didn't say. But I do feel like as a therapist and a new therapist, in an era where people's perceptions of therapy are really changing. I have just such a reflexive kind of response and negative response to therapists that pretend to be objective or pretend to be sort of outside of the arena of human frailty. I'm just not interested in that positioning. And I think it's unethical actually to pretend that anyone can sort of become immune to suffering that's a huge part of what I hope people can come to terms with is the idea that we're never going to get there. It's not in our nature and it's okay. It's actually good that we don't ever become infallible. So I wanted to just not only like kind of give myself a little bit of cred in the sense that I think a lot of people don't want a therapist who's never had any experience with the issues they work with. So I wanted to say, hey, I've been there, but also, you know, I'm still a real person. I'm still there in the sense that I'm still learning and I don't want to try to act like I know what's going on. That's too dangerous for everyone involved. Who did you write this book for? Mm. At the end of the day, I probably wrote it for my grandmother. And I wrote it in the sense that I wanted to share with others what I feel like she really taught me, which was to feel unashamed, to feel unashamed of what we're struggling with in the world. So I wrote it as a testament to her life and in honor of her. And I felt her with me very much during the process. She always knew that I would write books. So that was, that was really interesting because it started, I started the book right after she passed at the end of 2017. But in terms of the audience, I think I wrote it for the people who have never been able to figure out what their trauma is called, right? I've always just had these weird problems. I don't know how to explain to people without telling them my whole entire life story. You know, problems people don't understand, but yet so many of us have these. For me, like, oh, well, I was raised with my grandmother and she's kind of my mom, but not legally, but not really, but also she she is. And, you know, never mind. Like, it's like that kind of thing. And, and I work with so many of these people who, as they unfold their stories in our sessions together, I feel so honored to be a person who can sort of like make sense of them. And for so many of them, they haven't had that. They feel so alone in their trauma and in their pain. And I wanted them to feel like they're never alone. You're, no one is ever the only person experiencing something. You make the case that 
looking on the bright side is wrong. And leaning into sadness is actually the key to happiness. And I wanted you to describe a little bit about toxic positivity and and set the stage for why it's not enough to tolerate hard feelings, but we have to actually embrace them. Yes. (laughs) Toxic positivity, it's interesting, you know, being from the Midwest, I feel like it's an important message that people really need to hear that there's, there is value in feeling sad, in feeling, you know, burnt out, cynical, any of these things that we typically feel, you know, we want to reject. But on a deeper level, I don't even know that my message is that we need to privilege sadness over joy or anything else. I think my message, message is more that rejecting any part of who we are, and especially such a ubiquitous part of our experience, like sadness or tenderness or fear, is just not going to work. It, it just puts us at odds with ourselves. It's shaming because when we say to ourselves unconsciously or consciously that a feeling we're having is wrong or bad or even you know dangerous or untrustworthy, a lot of folks do actually feel that their feelings are an indication that they're unwell, that they're mentally unstable. When we have that attitude, we inherently are sort of creating a space of shame inside of ourselves. We're rejecting ourselves, but we're also just rejecting reality. Like reality is not actually good, bad. It just is. I mean, that sounds so cliche, especially for folks like me who, you know, study mindfulness, et cetera. Like these are really basic ideas, but when we talk about them from the space of emotion, which is often left out of like the mindfulness realm, I think we can see how just our everyday experience we often make it a lot harder by trying to sort through every feeling and decide which ones we're going to feel and not feel. It just doesn't work. And, you know, sadness, when we really sink into it and we really allow ourselves to open to it and we welcome it, it's often just tenderness. It's, it often to me feels a lot like love, the sadness of just being affected by the world and the the fleeting nature of everything. It's, I think a really beautiful and safe emotion. And I find a lot of my joy and fulfillment in life is is carved out inside of me through my willingness to feel that sadness. I don't know how connected to that this is, but there is a sense, a feeling, a, a movement around this idea that if you think positively about things, then they will manifest. And if you open yourself positively to the universe, then these good things will happen. And in some ways, I think that is a wonderful frame of mind, but it it does feel somewhat counter to this idea that to be a complete human, actually maybe we should be not wishing for, but expecting some bad things and bad feelings. Yeah, I mean, I think the science shows like when we expect that things will be difficult, we feel more capable of dealing with them and of approaching them. And we don't feel like something has gone wrong. Right. I think that's where a lot of people get stuck. It's like, it shouldn't be like this. I did everything right. I shouldn't be going through a divorce. I shouldn't be fighting with my kids. I shouldn't be poor. And then that just kind of adds insult to injury because now we're not only dealing with that struggle, we're also feeling like something's gone amiss and I'm too ashamed maybe to say that to other people. So now I'm not seeking support. It's kind of a cycle. And yeah, I think often it, it manifests the opposite. If we're going to use that word manifestation, it actually results in us being less likely to be able to find a solution because we're, we're stopping at not even accepting what's happening. 
You also talk about avoidance, which I guess is related pretty clearly with toxic positivity. And you say it may seem easy to move through negative feelings or bad situations by you know just ignoring or avoiding them. Um, but you point out, and, and this is quoting from the book, when avoidance is our default strategy, we also fail to learn the skills to manage stress well. We become fragile. And that really struck me because it feels as if when we were off air, we were talking about the pandemic, the nature of that, feelings around that, how mental health has become much more of a public conversation. And we're existing in a society where many of us do feel, I think, fragile uh, and fragile in very many ways in our lives. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that idea of being fragile um, and as a result of avoiding. Yes. I think fragile is an interesting word because, you know, it's it's not that there's something wrong with being, right, vulnerable to the world or being tender or raw or any other word we might kind of associate with fragility. To me, it's more the danger of avoidance is more the rigidity that tends to come when we, again, are not accustomed to and also not willing to feel the things that we believe we shouldn't be feeling or experiencing. So I see this, you know, happening in my personal life and in my professional work, kind of encounter folks who, frankly, have had the fortune to kind of avoid or be able to repress and kind of ignore certain personal and social hardships. Then when the moment comes that they can no longer avoid that, I find that, yeah, there's often a younger part that kind of comes to the front. And that's not to shame people. It's just to state like, you know, for example, like the feeling of rejection, which I think is a really important feeling to get used to, you know, embarrassment, right? If you have actually been able to largely avoid that, the age that you might kind of fall into to cope with that is probably a lot younger than maybe the age of your like sort of normal daily waking self because you haven't probably had to confront it since you were that age maybe. And we end up, all of us, because we're all sort of, you know, we can all kind of go to this place, but we end up closing out our relationships. We end up rejecting other people because we don't feel strong enough. We don't feel brave enough. Pima Chodron said we don't feel brave enough or sane enough to look at what's coming up inside of us in that moment. And we end up not being able to be with the other person who maybe isn't actually rejecting us that much. Maybe they're just saying in this moment, I can't sort of hang out with you, right? Or whatever it may be. If we don't have those skills, it's that kind of rigidity, not the fragility of like, I'm tender and I'm raw. When we feel that and we can own it and we're not rejecting it, that doesn't have to result in a problem, right? It's just a matter of like, if we're willing to face it, if we're willing to say, oh, wow, I'm feeling, I'm feeling fragile right now. Or like, I'm not fragile. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't feel rejected, right? That's that rigidity that starts to come up when we've been avoiding something for a long time. Obviously, the thoughts flashing through my head, conjuring images of all of those moments in my life, especially when I was young and otherwise encountering all sorts of rejection. So uh, yes, it may feel a little hard to hear that and, and process that and also find myself smiling uh, that I've survived all of those moments of deep humiliation. Oh yeah. Humiliation is like a daily practice for me. I mean, I feel embarrassed all the time and then that makes me just so much more immune to it. Like it's really hard for me to be at this point derailed 
by humiliation. Now let's let's see what happens. You know, when this press starts to come out, don't count me out. I could certainly crawl into a hole again. You know, <laughs> I'm still susceptible to these things. But I think just being willing to to feel it and accept that I feel it and not feel embarrassed to feel embarrassed. I'm grateful that I'm comfortable with that kind of emotion. To continue the pity part of the party. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about loneliness. So lots and lots of interesting data about what the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, has for some years called an, an epidemic, and that's loneliness. Because we don't really see loneliness, it's not as if you open a cupboard and, and there it is in a box labeled lonely. It's, it's intangible and invisible to many, even sometimes to ourselves. And so there it is, this toxic, pervasive, negative uh, situation. And it has deep and profound and also physical uh, impacts upon us. Would you talk a little bit more about the, the challenge of loneliness in society and for us as individuals? I mean, my view of loneliness is so colored by my experience as an American as a person who I have sort of anti-capitalist leanings for sure, <laughs> my understanding both personally and sort of from the research is that the way that we're living in the sense that we're living mostly, at least the people I know kind of alone or with our nuclear families, like a couple other people in these isolated homes where we're responsible for all of our basic needs individually we have to buy our own washing machine. We have to get all cultivate all of our own food and all of these things. That feels very unnatural to me. That seems very at odds with kind of the way that humans have survived throughout history. This is not my field, so I don't want to try to speak to that with too much authority, but that's my understanding is that it's not good for us and it's also not sustainable for our society and the planet. It's just not a good idea. The individualism at the level that we're experiencing it right now it doesn't work. And the effect that that has on our mental health, you know, just really can't be overstated. It's like that's just one of the ways that kind of individualism and isolation affects us. It's also anxiety has a huge role to play there because we're used to feeling safe because we have sort of a pack and a sense of belonging of people who will fight for us if the threat comes, right? So loneliness you know, it is a part of the human experience. It's going to always be there. I think loneliness might be sort of the bottom, like if we were in like a spiritual sense to kind of try to sink down to the very, very deepest core of like the pain in the human psyche. It might be loneliness, the sense that we have to live this life kind of in our own black box, right? You cannot really bring somebody else in there with you unless you feel a spiritual source, right? And so in that way, I think loneliness might just be a part of what we are living with as humans. And I think that the level of it, the pervasiveness of the ways that folks are feeling alone in their daily moments, their daily joys, their daily rituals, their daily pains, feeling like no one is there to witness that, no one is there to assist you with that, and it feels like such an effort to overcome the social messaging that says you shouldn't bother other people, you shouldn't trauma dump, 
to get through that, to reach out, feels like monumentous work for so many people. And that's really dangerous. So, you know, accepting that loneliness may always be with us is one thing. And we do not have to be feeling that at this level. We should not be feeling so alone. We should not be doing so many things on our own. We should not be feeling embarrassed to need help in really intense ways. We need help at every stage of life. And that's natural and that's healthy. You do invite in the book a couple of mindset shifts in particular, and one is around curiosity and the other is around building connection and relationships. Again, quoting from the book, you say, rather than wishing bad feelings away, we can learn to explore them, celebrate them even. And the key is curiosity. We must become fascinated by our experience, regardless of its quality. So I'm really compelled by those two mindset shift suggestions around curiosity and building stronger relationships. Would you elaborate just a little bit more about how we might rethink what those mindsets are? I just also love the way you framed those as two shifts. I I don't know that it was a conscious, like the curiosity and then the relational piece. I don't know that I consciously was like, these are shifts I'm requesting or inviting others to make, but you're right. I think it has to start with curiosity. And so I was very aware that this was not the book about relationships. That's probably going to be another book because I have a lot to say about relationships. And I felt like I needed to start with, first, we have to just kind of get right with ourselves in the sense of getting aware enough and interested enough in our experience to share it. So the curiosity piece and the kind of, the way that I wanted to give people a little bit of like a juicy idea about exploring their darker emotions. Partly it's because I think I've always just been kind of a little bit gothic and I'm just never going to grow out of that. Like I just enjoy dark. Like I love Halloween. Oh man. So cringe. I do. I just think it's fun. But at the same time, I think philosophically, I have been deeply influenced by Buddhism and mindfulness and Eastern philosophy and existentialism. Those two were really important for me kind of in my 20s. And I found that the attitude was what left me wanting. It was just so dry. And I really value fun. You know, like as a therapist, I help people figure out their values all the time. I I really value fun like spontaneous excitement and joy. And I think I really just needed, you know, when they say write the book you needed, I needed a book that was about that equanimity, that mindfulness folks talk about, like embracing everything, but that's like sexy and and fun and like not so dull. And, you know, we don't have to sit in a cave, you know, and meditate for five years to deal with your emotions. You can do it in a bathroom at a gross bar. You can do it anywhere. And why not let it be fun? You address this in the book. So I'm I'm going to push back on something you address, therefore, in the book, which is how can we be expected to handle our mental wellness when the very context of our lives, our social constructs are such that Maybe they're the cause and and it's not something internal to us. And so you talk about systemic injustice, for example, and issues around inequity. And so I'm curious about how you frame that in, in your own mind in terms of inviting people to think about the change they can make when the factors are external to them. 
Yeah. Is that a pushback? Because I agree with that entirely. (laughs) That would be a pushback and you anticipate it in the book and then you tackle it. Yeah. I mean, I try. I think that's something that I really want to be careful about because I don't mean to deny the reality that like, you know, mental illness is also biology and, you know, we always need to sort of state that it's not just systemic issues and conditions that are causing mental illness in folks, but it's certainly undeniable that it's a, it's a facet of it. It's a part of it. And I think the reason I wanted to drive it home a little bit, A, I just care about this really deeply. It's just kind of the space I've grown up in social justice community. Um, but I think it's not being stated enough in the mental health world. And right now I love that we're talking about mental health And there are, of course, people who are saying, look, if we're going to talk about mental health, we need to talk about the social conditions of our lives. Because for most people, it's a full time job to stay alive in this country right now, to stay afloat, to have a home. We cannot expect people to not have anxiety if they are one paycheck away from being unhoused. That is not going to work. Right. So that's one thing, you know, but I think a lot of us are focusing on that internal work, which is important. But whenever I hear a therapist talking exclusively about your childhood and the way your parents didn't give you the love you needed, and that's why you're traumatized. First of all, anyone who knows how hard it is to be a parent, I don't know. I'm just like, people are mostly doing their best. There are some parents, but But I think mostly people are doing their best. But also, what about what, you know, once we leave the home and we're in the world, so many of the people I work with are just struggling so much. And I know that it's affecting their well-being in every way. You have some particular views about the self-help industry. Would you sort of unpack a little bit more about some of the benefits you see in the self-help industry, but also how we should have caution around it? People feel empowered when they don't believe they have to wait for the assistance of a community to start to feel some power in their lives and take back some power. Absolutely, 100% agree with that. There's a lot to be said for the work, the self-work of like unpacking and unlearning shaming mindsets, right? We can do that inside of ourselves, you know, remembering everything we're feeling is natural, all of this stuff we can do on our own. But to the dangers, promising that if people do and buy certain things, I think that's a really important piece, the buying of things, right? So many people, so many self-help gurus, first of all, they lack often formal training. And I'm not here to claim that formal training is perfect. I have a lot of alternative training in my history as well. And much of that was more beneficial for me as a clinician and as a client than the training that I got in a traditional setting. But there's no accountability, right? Anybody can call themselves a life coach. Anybody can theoretically be an influencer. But so much social privilege is just hidden in that, right? The ability to even have the time and the money to look the way that someone would expect an influencer to look. And then the influencer is often not sort of stating that, right? They're not owning that. They're sort of allowing the audience to assume that they look so good because they are well in this way that they're saying we can be if we simply shift our thoughts. And it just really strikes me as predatory. It really strikes me as preying on people's hope, preying on people's shame, 
preying on people's poverty. And that really makes me angry. I just, I feel very protective of the underdogs, you know, of the world and the people who don't necessarily know, or they don't feel strong enough in that moment to even analyze that message because they want so badly to believe that that could be true for them. And so they're just going to give that money to this person and have this faith in that person that it just gets a little bit religious and they're going to probably be let down. And that breaks my heart. Well, you do offer a whole set of mindsets, practices, approaches that the reader can pursue to take steps towards their own mental well-being and, and, and learning how to actively embrace the way they feel. And there are very, very many in the book. One of them is around rituals and ceremonies. And you suggest that we've lost our sense in many ways of ceremony and ritual that we create for ourselves that isn't perhaps mandated or curated, as it were, for us. So could you describe, first of all, what is a ritual as, as you're defining that term, and then perhaps talk about its benefits and practice? I'm so glad you brought this up. I'm a little nervous to define it because I find it difficult to actually sort of encapsulate. And I had to, I really, in that chapter, defining ritual, I, I turned to a lot of research. So I uh, I may sort of mess this up. But I guess I would define ritual as sort of any act that we repeat. I think the repetition is important, sticking to a certain set of sort of actions and movements. There's the internal aspect where we're not doing the ritual to have a particular outcome. Like we're not seeking ritual because we want to make $5 or we want to, you know, go to the grocery store. That can be a ritual. But the internal part, the internal stance with ritual is that I would like to sort of achieve a different state of being. And the external part is that is it is complete unto itself in that way. We do the ritual again and again because we understand it to have meaning and we follow these same steps in kind of honor of something, right? Whether that's a grief ritual or a connection ritual or even a manifestation ritual of something we want to happen and bring about in our lives. So that can obviously look a lot of ways that can look like it can be, you know, the coffee that we have in the morning, even though we also hope that will help us wake up. It can be prayer. It can be meditation. The generation I grew up in, we were kind of leaving a lot of formal religion. A lot of folks that I know just felt uncomfortable with those spaces where maybe previous generations got their need for ritual met. But there's also a skepticism around, you know, any other form of ritual. It feels very cringe to some people. It feels like you're taking yourself too seriously. If you're kind of a science person, it can feel like you're kind of believing in something that's way too woo-woo or out there. And so I just wanted to bring up the point that there is a lot of research to show that even simple rituals that we make up ourselves those can very positively affect our mental health, our emotional, our regulation. And humans have evolved to do ritual. You know, this is a part of our, our history. It's a part of our ancestry. It's a part of our, our biology. 
And so whether or not you actually believe it has some kind of spiritual meaning, it doesn't actually seem to matter that much. It just, it's good for us. I think it can be very dignifying. I read the chapter where you describe a cry diary. A wonderful solution to our challenges. But I thought, I, I don't know how to do that. And I don't know if I could do that. So for the listener and for someone who, who hasn't yet had the chance to read the book, which is out in July, what is a cry diary? <laughs> First of all, Stuart, you do not have to have a cry diary. I will still respect your uh, reception of the book. Thank you for that. I don't think a lot of people will probably do that one. And that's okay. This is a ritual that I sort of invented for myself, maybe because I'm vain, maybe because I am just a glutton for punishment and and shaming and, you know, approaching embarrassment in my own life. It's essentially just recording yourself crying and then watching it and journaling or just watching it and practicing self-love. I think it, seeing ourselves in the moments when we most don't want to look at ourselves, that alone, right, holds a lot of power or opportunity for kind of reclaiming power, right? If I'm talking about and hoping people will release shame whenever possible, I think this is an opportunity to do that because don't get me wrong. I have watched videos of myself crying and felt like I couldn't watch it. You know, I really have. And then the more that I watch it, I'm like, eh, whatever. You know, I've seen so many people in my life crying. I feel honored to have seen so many people crying. That strikes me as an act of trust. And when someone is crying in front of me, I have never once thought, wow, they look bad. And it's not because I'm an angel. I think people look bad. I just don't think that when people are crying in front of me, there's something so just tender. And it feels it's so it, it actually really does affect us on a biological level. I don't remember if that just even made its way into the book. But when someone cries in front of you, it lowers like testosterone levels automatically. There are just different things that witnessing someone crying kind of automatically shifts inside of us. And so I think it's probably pretty unlikely that other people are judging us the way we might judge ourselves in those moments. But if we can find a way to see ourselves with a little bit of that distance, that we might see someone else, you know, see ourselves with the eyes we would see someone else with, we can just be feel more free when the crying does come to embrace ourselves. In the act of creating a cry diary, did that change the nature of your crying or your emotions or your feelings in the act of crying? Did you, to some degree, remove yourself because you are now introducing a, a practice around it? I think probably, yes. You know, right? Observing changes the observer. But again, I'm a performer, you know, so I've done a lot in the past. Where, you know, I've seen myself, you know, I've watched myself kind of recognize that I'm being watched. And then there's also usually a moment in the video where I can see that I stop thinking about the video. These are long videos for me. I don't mean to make other people feel bad if they don't cry for as long as I do. I'm talking, this is like a 20 minute file. I have to upload it to my Dropbox because it's taking up too much space in my phone. But there's like a six minute window where I'm like, I'm still looking at the camera. <laughs> It's so funny. It's just ridiculous. You know, I keep looking over and I'm like, oh, this is a bad angle. I better move. And then there's a moment where I could see that I just lose that and I'm just going for it. And it also helps me track it, you know, because I'm I'm also interested in kind of 
that aspect, the science of it, like, well, how long does it seem to take me to move through the feeling? This somewhat of a predictable pattern. And then you're like, okay, so that's what I can expect next time I start weeping. It's probably going to be about seven minutes of that. And then seem to get a little hungry after that each time. And (laughs) so that's part of the fun too. Talk a little bit about our need for physicality, our need for skin-to-skin touch, especially given the pandemic and our social isolation. And this culminates in what is referenced in your bio that we read at the top here, your practice and processes and also rules around cuddle puddles. Oh, yeah, cuddle puddles. (laughs) Yeah, this is another piece where I feel like I have to be really careful, right? People need to have a high level of proficiency around communication and boundaries to practice safely in these things. And that said, I don't want people to feel like they have to have a master's degree to cuddle safely and get their physical needs for affection met. Humans are just naturally, I think, affectionate. We want that. We want to feel that we belong on an animal level. We want somebody's hand on our back. You know, we want somebody standing next to us. We want to feel the warmth of them. And so I didn't go too deeply into it. But for myself, embodiment and being in my body in different ways has been so central to my ability to move through and process emotion, difficult emotion. And I think, you know, the somatic folks are like probably hearing that and thinking, duh, that is what emotion is. It's physical. It's not ephemeral. It's not an idea. It's in your body. So if we want to grow our capacity to experience life fully, to be present, we're going to have to do that in our bodies because that's what we're doing here. We are having an embodied experience. And so just, first of all, knowing that, remembering that it's a physical experience to have an emotion is is revolutionary for a lot of people. Then we move into the piece of like, just gaining an awareness of the body, noticing what's happening when we're feeling something. In Buddhism, they kind of call it dropping the story. So instead of focusing on what does it mean, just what does it feel like? And then from there, to be able to do that well, when the feeling is big and the feeling is scary, I believe it's in our nature to seek the larger body of other people a community, right? When you're in a cuddle puddle of people that you trust, you start to feel like it's just all one big body. And there's something so profoundly safe and comforting about that. It's no longer just me and my senses against this scary world. It's this whole pack of animals that I'm a part of. So that's a larger body that an emotion can much more easily move through because it's not just me. And from there, I would say the earth is the larger body. That's the same to me. It's material. It's this embodied living earth that we are in, in these bodies. And we're meant to be connected to the earth. So we don't have to do it alone in my little scared body. It can be, the emotion can pass through me, through my connection to others and through my connection to the earth. One of the other uh, practices that you suggest in the book as a way for us to claim and accept and come to terms with and embrace a a little bit more of the difficulty in terms of our feelings and emotions is a practice called funeral for the person we used to be. Would you share a little bit more about what that is? What what are the benefits of of that as a practice and, and how we might go about it? The funeral for who we used to be, 
I mean, I feel like I've done this in so many ways during periods of my life. I believe that when we are, you know, fully riding the the emotions and the waves of, of feeling that move through us as our lives, as we go through life and difficult things happen to us, if we're really willing to embrace change as it happens, we just, we're going to be so many different people in this life if we're not clinging to who we think we have to be. And so marking that in some way, you know, observing it and acknowledging that I am fully not who I was five years ago. My beliefs have changed. My appearance has changed. What scares me has changed. Finding a way to honor that and fully shed it allows me to more fully step into the phase that I am in now. And I just think, you know, grief doesn't get enough time and and airplay in our society. We really don't spend enough time with it. We're not familiar with it. We're not comfortable with it. So I wanted to kind of bring in a playful activity to think about death in that way. Obviously, I'm talking about a metaphorical death, right? The death of who we were. But at the same time, you know, for a lot of people that can feel like a huge loss, you know, I mean, there are real changes that can happen like physically. We can become unable to do the things that we once did. And finding a way to grieve that, giving us ourselves space to grieve that is part of what that activity is meant for. You shared that another interviewer reference that this book in some ways was a memoir and it made you reflect on the fact that many elements of how you talk about feelings and emotions and experiences are drawn from your own life so that you can give form to what you're trying to share in the book. And so you shared that you grew up at risk with parents that struggled with addiction and and housing insecurity and incarceration. And I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about what your childhood was like. So, you know, I didn't really know my birth parents. It didn't really occur to me that that was a that I was adopted until I was somewhat of a teenager. <laughs> Sometimes I I really come to things later and I'm like, wow, that seems so obvious now. Funny. But I was raised by my grandmother, who's, you know, a, a large, she's a central figure in the book. She was a huge influence on me in every way. She got pregnant when she was 15. She had four kids by 20 and three of them still to this day struggle pretty seriously with addiction and pretty hardcore stuff, you know, like meth. It's not easy to get off of that, not to diminish how severe other forms of addiction can be, but it just, the cycle was so embedded by the time I was born. And so kind of witnessing that at a bit of a distance in the sense that it wasn't like my uncles and my birth mother were around a lot, but the kind of shape of the pain and the anxiety in my grandmother was always there, always with us. And I can't even imagine, I don't have children, so I I cannot imagine the pain of feeling so helpless to witness your children struggling in these ways. But I think it would be impossible for me to make sense of my life without understanding or acknowledging the weight of that on me. My desire to assist her and free her of that pain, of that guilt, of that dread, right? And also my feeling of having sort of been severed from a lineage, right? Having a sense of not knowing where I come from, not knowing my birth father at all, 
And later, you know, I've done some work with like finding those connections and some communication has happened there and some healing, but I know I'm not alone in that. And at the time I felt so alone, like nobody in my immediate environment was struggling with that kind of family structure. And so that was a big part of kind of what drove me to the healing world was trying to feel connected to something, trying to feel like I came from somewhere that I wasn't just this untethered little pebble, you know, kind of floating through the world. And can I just say back to the point about nature, I came to nature and a love of nature later in life. I didn't grow up at all with any interest in the outside world. I didn't go to Girl Scouts. I wasn't into camping or whatever. I was very probably naively arrogant about like ideas. I'm an existentialist. I love ideas, right? (laughs) But I found that, you know, sort of that idea, that ideology paired with like my sense of being separate from family. My grandmother was very sick for a lot of my life and passed when I was 28, 29. So it was like, I really needed to feel grounded. I needed to find a way to come back to the earth. And that's really what kind of drove me to the woods. I talk about that in the book. So it was always just, yeah, this experience of figuring out that I wasn't the only one having the experience I was having. And I think that's that's part of what I try to help others do now. Is that a part of why you became a therapist? Absolutely. Yes. My therapist, I started going to therapy early on, thank God. And I can't even account for the the role that that played, you know, just the space to speak so openly and candidly about what was happening. In in the book, you make uh, this point. So quoting from the book, you say, feelings aren't symptoms of ill health. They aren't even a divergence from the norm, the way a fever or a headache would be. They are the norm. And so it feels to me as if you are describing that you assume a slightly different approach to the practice of therapy and what therapy is for. And you also describe yourself as someone who works with self-identified misfits. Could you just share a little bit about what you think therapy is, what it's for? I, I think my approach is is probably in line with like the newer generation of therapists that I've kind of, that I was trained with and that I feel fortunate enough to have as a part of my community. We're taking a little bit of a critical approach to the history of diagnosis. You know, where are these diagnoses coming from? (laughs) Like who invented these? What were their biases, right? Thinking about that and then kind of trying to reimagine the space of therapy while recognizing, I think this is not just my idea, but that therapy probably wouldn't be so necessary if people were living in community. I don't take any offense to that. It doesn't hurt my feelings at all. I wish that my clients had more support on it's almost always a part of our treatment plan is to develop those spaces for themselves. But I think for me, the goal of therapy is to help people grow their capacity to tolerate and work with any feeling or anything that might come up in their life, just to feel more competent facing themselves and the world. Because absolutely, I am unable to promise them that they will not have more challenge or trauma in their future. There's just, that would be so naive and unethical of me to try to pretend. 
that I could do that. But I can and we can together through the co-regulation of the relationship, through just the skills that, you know, the mindfulness skills, all of the different protocols that therapists are trained to help clients work with. We can grow their ability to actually work with a feeling, to move through it, to have those new coping skills, to correct their beliefs about what they think a feeling means about them. That's very possible and it's very doable. That's a beautiful thing to be part of that process. You end the book with, with this. You say, Mama, we can't protect the people we love. Not really. We can only love them and in doing so, prepare them to live in a world that's often less than loving. And the overwhelming feeling I had exiting the book was that it really is a book actually about love. And I don't know how that sensibility rings with you now that I say that to you out loud as my experience as a reader of it. Well, I'm, I'm crying. So that's, that's one thing that's happening. <laughs> I, I really appreciate hearing that back stated so simply. I think maybe I'm realizing right now in this actual moment that I wanted to write the book as a way of almost saying to her, to my, my grandmother, I love this life even with everything that has happened and that continues to happen <laughs> to me and everyone that I love, right? I love being alive and I am okay. I am okay because I felt that I was taught to embrace the fullness of what was happening to me. I was, I was taught through her own learning, right? She was very transparent about her challenges with loving life. <laughs> And she wanted to protect me so much. She wanted to protect her children from harm so badly. And I think being able to say to her in this kind of spiritual way, I can handle it. I can handle it because you taught me how to love the whole thing and that it's all okay and that it's all a part of it. Yeah, I think it is a book about loving life. It's a book about being able to love this world with its brokenness. And to love our experience with all of its despair. My guest today has been author and psychotherapist Chelsea Harvey Garner. Chelsea, this has been a real delight. Thank you. What a treat. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. <laughs>